What is government? To better understand the many invisible ways that government affects our lives, I meet with public sector employees across the U.S. and ask them about their work. I try to understand the reasons behind the bureaucracies, the values behind the politics, and most importantly, the people behind the curtains. I'm Grayson Wright, and this is government. For our first episode, I sat down with Jessica Cole, who is the Development Services Innovation Lead at the city of Walnut Creek, California. Jessica and I met as Code for America Fellows in 2016. During that year, we worked with different cities on using technology to improve how they deliver public services. At the end of that fellowship year, Jessica took the rest of the plunge into the public sector and has been working with the city of Walnut Creek for the past five months. Although we'd kept in touch a bit, I didn't know too much about what Jessica had been working on in Walnut Creek. In this conversation, she filled me in on the importance and breadth of development services. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, including what it takes to plan for a city's future, the motivation and purpose behind California's thousands of pages of building codes, why governments have been turning to innovation teams to tackle new kinds of problems, and my personal favorite, Jessica's strategy for accomplishing what she calls a disproportionate amount of good in the world. I had a lot of fun talking with Jessica, and I can't think of a better person with whom to start off the show. I think you'll enjoy our conversation as well. Um, so you have been working with the city of Walnut Creek um, for about five months now. Your title on LinkedIn is Development Services Innovation Lead. Yes. So for the rest of us, what are development services? Great question. I didn't know when I first read the job description. Development services basically refers to all of the divisions that are involved with doing something with real estate in a city. So okay. if you want to get anything built, then you are going to go through a series of uh, divisions, and often they're split across community and economic development and public works. And so in our case, development services team actually refers to planning, building, engineering, uh, and uh, within those, each of them have their own kind of subsets. Okay. I, I saw a study um, on Walnut Creek's website. It was a study put together by NerdWallet that looked at 463 kind of small cities, less than, I think, 500,000 people mm-hmm. around the country, looking at the best places to start a small business. And Walnut Creek came in number 17th on that list. So looking at that, what factors come into play or how, how do cities kind of make themselves appealing to, to bring people in and to develop kind of a vibrant community of both economically as well as making sure there's a good balance of uh, residents or other uses? It's a really good question. And certainly I can't take credit for it since it hasn't happened <laughs> the last five months. 
but I can certainly hazard some guesses. So a lot of what I've been interacting with for the first time in this job has actually been this idea that um, cities should actually have plans for themselves, right? General plans. And I had, I had always heard about, you know, um, Burnham's plan for Chicago and some of the more famous ones that have been used around the country, but I had never actually been in city government of a city where they, you know, have a general plan. And in Walnut Creek's case, they have a general plan for 2025. They've been doing this general plan process for many years. And what they do in order to create those is actually go out into the community, spend years hosting community workshops, and uh, it's on all kinds of topics. Like you might think it's only land use, that's certainly a part of it, but it's also what kinds of amenities do you wanna see over the next 25 years um, and 50 years and 100 years? Uh, what kind of community do you wanna live in? Do you prefer, for example, uh, would you prefer a community that is more friendly to you know, live theater or movie theaters, to uh, parking really close to where you're going or to having a lot of walkability? And it's not that there is always an either or, but it's the kinds of conversations that I think a lot of cities shy away from because it's tough, <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that I've seen about Walnut Creek is that they actually put a lot of energy into that planning process and they try to get a lot of buy-in. And what that can do for businesses, I think, is actually give them some level of both inspiration and security that when they're thinking of building something, it is in line with what the community is looking for and in an area of town in which it's zoned uh, to welcome that kind of use. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a big piece of it. Uh, again, I'm coming out from a very particular perspective um, and there are a lot of other pieces, uh, but that's something that I, I think a lot about is you know, how do you as a community surface some of the things that are desires uh, of the people who live there and then share that out publicly so that other people can take advantage and can get their wheels turning and try to make it happen from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. One thing that I think, and you said it, is that a lot of people don't realize the amount of planning that <laughs> goes behind any successful... I didn't realize it until I started this, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> One thing that strikes me is that it sounds a lot like one of the more important pieces of it is the ongoing or ongoing conversation with the community. What does it take to get the right people involved in those conversations? Mm -hmm. What are the challenges? Um, where is it not an issue? And you, it's kind of like a surefire, like this is in everyone's best interests, and where do you really need to slow down and get the right people involved? Mm -hmm. So this is an area in which I think our city has benefited from having a form of government that is council and city manager. And it's benefited okay. uh, in that because we kind of always have a voice of the community that's elected pretty regularly that's weighing in on all of these kind of longer term strategic and budgetary issues. And they are serving on council and council is informed about things that are going on and uh, they don't serve full time in a lot of cases. And so they are actually out in the community. They, are, they often will bring to council things that um, they say, like so people approach me at the farmer's market about this, or someone pulled me aside at the sidelines of a game and talked to me about this. And so we kind of have those, have those uh, eyes and ears out on the street looking at what the community is mm -hmm. wanting. 
Um, and simultaneously, we have a city manager and we have this incredibly robust and knowledgeable city staff, some of whom have been there for 30 years. And so they kind of bring the technical expertise of how do you get things done. And the mm -hmm. council often is bringing the how do you tap into the community. And that's that works pretty well at a high level. On a day-to-day -day level, I still really feel like we're perfecting for each department where your overlap with the public should be. Something that we've been experimenting more as part of the work that I'm doing is actually uh, using some more typical design and user experience tactics within city government. Mm -hmm. And so one example is that we've started doing user intercepts, uh, which people who are in the design field will understand, but was totally new to government folks where uh, when someone was in the waiting room waiting for their you know permit at the counter, I would just walk over to them and ask them questions and not wait for them to actually fill out the survey that was on the on the countertop, um, but instead proactively seek their input. Mm -hmm. And similarly, we started hosting uh, forums, development services forums, where we uh, proactively invite a whole bunch of people to come and talk to us about some of the topics that are going on. So I think there's still a lot of new ways that we can do that, uh, but. But by and large, the structure of the government has made that a lot easier than it otherwise might have been. Okay. Building on that and kind of taking a step back from the actual tactics uh, that you use, can you just give us like a, a high-level view of how you see the city of Walnut Creek right now and what's going well, what, what you'd like to see change in the next 10 years, how far out are you considering things, and like what's the, what's the picture from kind of the, inside the government there? So speaking just as Jessica Cole right now, okay. and not on behalf of the city or anyone within it. Um, so uh, Walnut Creek is, is at a really interesting point, because right now, in a lot of ways, it's actually thriving. Uh, we came out of a really tough recession that hit a lot of people. We lost, you know, we had to kind of tighten our belts with city staff. We had a pause in local development, like a lot of cities. and. We came out of that, and due to some budgetary foresight, we decided to be a little conservative, and so we actually have now a little bit more room temporarily in our in our budgets, and um, and are able to consider new priorities. And we also have had a lot of private development that has really helped the city to have a pretty significant tax base, um, and that for us has been things like uh, Broadway Plaza. Um, which is a major development uh, downtown, many, many shops. Uh, it's also been um, a lot of just, just the factor that there are a lot of jobs being produced generally around the Bay Area right now. Mm -hmm. And so that's been good, but there have been a couple of layers, I would say, at the regional and state level uh, that are posing challenges. So one is, like the rest of the Bay Area, Affordable housing is really, really an issue, and when I say affordable, I don't just mean uh, affordable a la how government defines like Section 8 housing. I mean um, housing for anybody who's really anywhere but the very upper echelon of the workforce. So for people in Walnut Creek, um, and I, I don't have the exact statistics in my mind um, because it might even be more dramatic than this, but I believe that it's been over a 60% increase in average annual rent, maybe median annual rent, wow. uh, in the last like, 15 years. Um, wow. Just tremendous mm -hmm. spikes. 
uh, relative to people who have been there for a long period of time. And, um, and not only that, but in Walnut Creek's case, it's actually a community where uh, people kind of switch places so that the majority of Walnut Creek works elsewhere and uh, and so and then comes back and but we also are a net job creator so a, a ton of other people come into Walnut Creek and okay. the types of jobs that they're coming into Walnut Creek for tend to be for uh, not entirely but in a large part you know um, service jobs are jobs that are that are you know blue or white collar jobs that might still put them below that highest level of income and so you know one real question that we're facing like a lot of other places uh, is how do you make sure that you have a community that really thinks ahead and values quality of life without figuring out ways to protect teachers and uh, mm-hmm. service workers and kids who are turning 19 and looking for their first couple of jobs to get on their feet? And we don't totally know what that's going to look like for us. So that's something that we're thinking a lot about. Uh, in addition, um, I have... I think that that Walnut Creek has a really interesting opportunity um, to differentiate itself from some of its neighbors. We're putting together an economic development strategic plan for the first time in a while right now, and you know some of the pieces for us are eight percent of Walnut Creek lives in uh, Rossmore, which is a, a senior housing, senior living complex, and that is um, a gated community, and uh, it's because it is particularly targeted, it means we're probably always going to have that collection of folks. Mm -hmm. And around them, we've kind of grown a really interesting array of medical providers. And uh, so that's one opportunity for us. How can we think about that? We have a lot of people who are involved in the tech uh, community. We have this retail element, and uh, we have a really large um, amount of actually auto sales. Uh, Yeah, there's a very large... um, auto contingent in Walnut Creek. And so uh, I, what I think is really exciting is how do you think about not trying to be the same as everyone else around you, but instead saying, what is it that, that we have and that we're doing that is different than our neighbors? And how do we look at that and try to set ourselves apart? So you know, one way of thinking about that, for example, is like, great, we have all of these car companies. Our uh, traffic engineer um, and that team has actually already started to uh, adapt the traffic lights so that they're more usable when we actually get um, self-driving vehicles of various sorts. Wow. So, yeah. so it's it's starting to see okay, what do we have now, and then think two steps ahead mm-hmm. and and uh, use that. And it's interesting. Something I didn't really consider is just the um, the interplay between Walnut Creek and the surrounding communities. It's kind of in um, Looking at a map, it's situated really close to San Francisco and Oakland and the entire Bay Area, um, and also it's kind of a gateway to more of the Central Valley um, as well. And so that's actually why Walnut Creek was started oh, uh, originally. Okay. And and I say started. I want to be respectful of how I say started because uh, this is taking a very uh, I would say like settler-centric view of, of started, uh, not not talking as much as we ought to be about people who were already living there. But um, but one of the reasons it popped up as a community um, was because it actually sits at the intersection of uh, the major roads in the area. Okay. And, uh, and, and that actually was major rail lines way back when. Oh. Uh, and so 
there there is literally one of the major state highways uh, goes right through um, Walnut Creek, and uh, and one of the major reasons that the town was actually incorporated, which I don't want to get my dates wrong. I think it was 1908, 96, early 1900s. Um, and but the reason that it was incorporated was because people wanted to be able to pave Main Street. It was all about like, this, this, and so they needed to tax themselves, and so they needed to vote to incorporate, and, and because it was, you needed to vote to incorporate, there were also sections of town that voted not to incorporate, and those are still unincorporated parts of Walnut Creek. Really? So, like, the city of Walnut Creek is roughly 70,000 people in the incorporated part. The uh, unincorporated part actually adds another 20,000 people, roughly. Wow. Uh, and uh, so we're not a full-service city, and so what they're doing is not being part of the uh, city, but they get county-level services. And okay. that's kind of how that overlaps. A little Swiss cheesy uh, when you really <laughs> look at it. So anyways, continue with what you were saying, but that is a lot of the history behind Walnut Creek is really uh, because of that crossroads, and that's also part of why it became such a retail hub. Was yeah. because and and an, actually an auto sales hub was again because there's just a lot of traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really neat. So changing topics a little bit, you're the innovation lead mm-hmm. in a lot of kind of local governments. In the last few years, we've started to see innovation teams or um, initiatives mm-hmm. start popping up, and uh, they like generally fall under a single department. It could be anything from development to IT mm-hmm. to planning. Uh, but the thing that sets them apart from how, how government traditionally works is they're given a bit more free reign than, uh, than other groups and really it feels like encouraged to experiment a lot more. Um, and I'm curious, why is like an explicit focus on innovation valuable? And what can what do like specific innovation initiatives in government accomplish that other kind of more t- traditional or um, established government processes either can't accomplish or it would be uh, a lot more difficult for them to accomplish? So before I tell you that, let me just tell you that I was not hired to a job description reading innovation lead. Okay. <laughs> so the, the, the job description that was on the original kind of posting was actually under uh, the very sexy title of Development Services um, Project Manager Brackets Limited Duration, <laughs> <laughs> which I know a lot of people coming from other industries would have just leapt at. Uh, uh, it's good to have the full disclosure <laughs> up front. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and what happened was I actually, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to work in government. I saw the, read, the um, description and I I actually started reading the posting. So I, I looked past the headline and started reading it. And the more that I read and saw certain kind of key attitudes reflected in the description, which were things like um, someone who is customer-centric and trying to uh, orient things towards, you know, what I would call, and what we often call, like, users um, or residents, uh, that they were called customers, um, and uh, people who are kind of innovative in their thinking and uh, approaching things in new ways, I realized more and more that actually what they were talking about had very much to do with innovation, a traditional innovation role, um, mainly because it wasn't just about executing. You know, there's a, there's a part of uh, a, the innovation role that is just executing. There is that project manager part of like, okay, you have these ideas, you want to see them realized, you need to be able to get shit done. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of my French. 
And, <laughs> and there's also another section, though, that isn't just about executing and is, in fact, about exploring and experimenting and connecting and being able to constantly be pulling the best approach into government in a way that they don't otherwise have access to. And so the way that I actually see the, uh, and, that's, and that's kind of how we got to, to my current title was because when we were um, actually talking through the offer, we were able to have that conversation that said, actually, I think this is really what you're looking for, and they completely agreed. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's how that was born, but they've never had a title, a, a title or a role like this quite before. Right. And the way that I think about my job is that my job is to not be married to the process and instead be married to the outcome. And there are very few government positions who are fortunate enough to have that mandate. In, in many cases, when you are hired, you are hired to play a role in a process. You are hired to like be at the front counter and make sure that this application gets submitted and gets inputted into this program and then gets handed off appropriately. Or you are hired to be a you know police officer and you are you know patrolling this particular set of streets. Or, um, and in my case, I didn't need to fit into the existing process. I instead can think about no, I'm hired to to figure out what metrics make sense from a development services perspective, whether that is how many projects, once they are approved by the community, get uh, through the process relatively close to their expected uh, opening date, or something that uh, could be uh, how, to what extent can we predict the fees that will go alongside the process and have that actually be reflective of the fees that they end up being charged, mm -hmm. um, or something like how much time uh, can we allow for the uh, frontline staff to be able to focus on the really hard um, kind of um, review and discussions that happen with applicants ideally instead of inputting things one by one into a computer system? Mm -hmm. um, and so I get to think about what should these grand outcomes be and then throw out all of the processes that, you know, that don't work to get us there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I think about innovation in government is the, the job of people like me is to figure out what outcome should we be having? What, what, is the, what is the net service that we're looking to provide here? And let's not get too immediately married to the way we've always been doing it and instead figure out where we can, where we can bring in new approaches to get us to that same end mm -hmm. in a better way. Right. Yeah, I feel like a lot of, probably overgeneralizing here, but a lot of um, what I think of government's uh, processes is typically following established rule books and um, kind of, and for, for good reasons in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. um, it's uh, government services are an enormous safety net uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases and they're, they're dealing with some of the most tricky and delicate situations uh, that we as a community face and there's, they're, they're real consequences is there a, was there a turning point, I guess, hmm. in like government ideology where people took a look around and said it's no longer going to cut it to just follow the, the same process that we've been using for the last uh, few decades? What, like, what conditions are ripe for innovation? Yeah. So that makes me think of a couple of things. First of all, I want to actually give an example because you said it really well, which was that 
you know, governments sometimes have process for a reason. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think is really hard to understand from the outside, that a government agency often isn't, unlike a company or, or, or a tra traditional startup, is not, does not exist solely to serve the person who's standing right in front of them. They serve the populace at large. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example of that. The building department, uh, or sorry, building vision in Walnut Creek. Um, you come up and you have to apply for a building permit. Uh, and they need to see your plans. And then they're going to take a look at those plans for quite a while. And they have these giant books, <laughs> giant books, <laughs> that they're checking through, which are, you know, a, a tiered series of um, codes, you know, building codes. And those are at the... Uh, national level all the way down, state, et cetera. And, and that can be a really tough experience for an applicant because you're sitting there being like, are you kidding me? You are telling me that I have to move, make this tiny little uh, pole moved over an inch and that's going to run back to the rest of the plan and, you know, so on. Mm -hmm. And so applicants sometimes can just be, you know, uh, understandably kind of apoplectic at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and... and uh, and then I sat down with them and I said, you know, tell me about, tell me about how you think about your job. And they said, do you understand why building code exists? And I said, not really. <laughs> why don't you tell me about it? And they said, building code came about because uh, in the early 1900s, there were fires all the time in cities, across mm -hmm. entire cities. You know, and obviously San Francisco is is incredibly knowledgeable we're about no stranger. Like, right we're no stranger and <laughs> and so you know building codes came about because um, there are ways that you as a private owner or developer uh, can actually build a structure that either helps to safeguard the people around you and the people who are inside of your establishment at the moment that something happens or endangers them Mm -hmm. And so when you think about it, when you, when someone's building in the city, um, now you're checking for things like fire code and safety. We're checking for things like earthquake um, safety and, and, and kind of structural soundness. We're checking for things uh, along the lines of uh, now actually um, ADA compliance and, you know, yeah. who can get in and out. Um, and accessibility of various sorts. Mm. You know, we have now, there's some environmental regulations that are layered in there. Like, we have now, you know, obviously completely broadened what is considered um, a building plan check, but, but these are engineering questions, and these are questions that are not about the applicant who's sitting in front of you at the moment in time. Right. There are questions that are about the entire community, and so at moments where someone's saying, I can't believe you're holding up my project, just that I changed, you know, this particular wall to, to you know, be a better load-bearing wall or whatever the case may be, um, the engineer, the planning engineer at that moment is thinking, like, yes, but if an earthquake happens in our city and there are 75 people who are in your establishment at that moment, they're going to be safe because of what we're doing. Right. Uh, and so I'm not saying that there are not ways that we can improve that process. There are so many ways, uh, <laughs> you know, and we're working on them now. And often the engineers are the first to volunteer those those ideas. But I, I do think that there isn't a great appreciation for how challenging it can be 
as a public servant to mm -hmm. balance the person who's standing right in front of you, who is certainly one of the people who you know you're there to serve, with this broader, more amorphous populace of the present and future that you are also right. thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, to a large extent, the, the things that governments, that we, we charge governments with are things that are too messy or, let's say, not fun to <laughs> think about as individuals. Yeah. It's good to know that it's there for a reason, though. Yeah. And, and that it is um, uh, serving to protect people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, I think that's, you asked about, you know, when are conditions a little bit ripe? for some of this work to happen. Mm -hmm. And there are any number of factors, but some of them I think are when people start to recognize that the intent in, in kind of the intentions that they have with the work that they're doing are no longer aligned with uh, the outcomes that they're seeing and okay. that there's a chance for realignment. And so, um, and again, that gets to like being willing to change up the process a little bit to get to that outcome. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'll give you an example of this again. I'm just going to keep, keep going back to these development examples, but, um, an example of this is, uh, in the, in the planning process, right? Um, certain things need to undergo, certain things are ministerial and can get approved by a checklist, basically. Like you follow these, you make a sign that looks like this and we, you know, feel good about it. That can pass muster and, and right. get permitted. Um, and then there are things that are discretionary and those, those need to go actually either at staff level review or um, to a commission level review, sometimes up to council. And they need to, to give their opinion before actually giving approval. And there were times where uh, people would end up because they were, they didn't totally know how the process worked. They'd kind of get caught in a spin cycle where they would, they would like submit their initial application and then they would get letters back that had comments in them. And if you look at those comment letters and you don't know how to read them, it is challenging. Uh, it's, it's like looking at a whole bunch of footnotes almost, you know, you're mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, and, and you're reading things that are saying like, you know, um, setbacks cannot be more than this amount and, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. And, and you don't know, experienced developers know how to address those things, but right. people who are not don't actually know. And so, uh, the term that we kind of had was people were kind of like getting caught almost in like the washing machine and like in like the, in the, in a, a loop where mm, they would, okay. you know, try to address them and then they would resubmit and then you need to wait 30 days to get more comments back and you'd go back. And at that point, it's not benefiting anybody. It's not benefiting the city to have uh, their their kind of planning department spend so much time uh, kind of re-giving feedback. Uh, it's not benefiting the applicant because it's costing them money and they're needing to reapply. Um, and, and so they were saying, okay, you know, our intent with this review period is to uh, give you enough information that you can revise and then be successful to write next round, or if if it really is a problem, walk away from the project the way that you intended it, and you know, kind of go back right. to the drawing board. Um, the outcome that we're seeing is that people are spending 120 days in this part of the cycle and a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, without it being predictable. Uh, okay, we are now open to uh, thinking about new ways of doing this because it's it's not you know right. that that alignment is off. 
Right. Uh, so I think uncovering those moments are the really powerful ones. And that gets back to, I think, an example that you and I both were present for, which was um, the VA and how that, um, how, you know, one of the ways that they convinced the VA that they needed to reduce some of their applications um, for benefits was actually by showing videos of people who were trying to apply for those benefits and completely unable to do so right. using the existing system. And I think that was really powerful because it showed like, hey, we're not doubting your intent. We know that you are doing mm -hmm. this because you want to provide care. Um, we don't think you're trying to block off care. But look at the outcome. The outcome is somebody who's refreshing a page 18 times, you know, uh, mm. uh, I think it was with Flash or something, whatever it was that, like, wasn't letting yeah, it in. Yeah, I think um, if I remember you talking about the yeah. talk that was given at the Code for America Summit yep. Yep. Um, By the CTO. last yeah. year, and it was, um, they showed a few of these videos in the presentation of uh, people trying to even sign up, sign on to the site or yep. submit this one form. Um, and some really funny at times user commentary about yeah. <laughs> where did I just entered all this information and now the entire screen is blank. Like what is going on? And um, obviously the people at the VA have never needed had a need to right. go in and fill this out themselves or right. um, very rarely kind of see the see firsthand the experience of someone approaching the system from the other side. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and it's, you know, it's it's funny in some ways and then it's also devastating in other ways right. because you sit there and you say this is a real person they're trying to access services. We went through what what should have been the hardest part, which was getting it approved so that we could budget <laughs> for it to begin with. You know, like uh, and this this is something that code for America harps on all the time. Whatever your politics are, whatever you believe, um, once we put a policy in place and put money behind it, I think we should all agree that the implementation should get done right. And so uh, so I think for people who are looking to create innovation in their government, to the extent that they can find these examples of, okay, I instead of doubting people's intent and saying they are trying to make it hard, instead say, okay, it seems your intent is this. Do I have that correct? And in the building code's perspective, they might say, no, actually our intent is to make sure that you're, you know, fire safe <laughs> and then you might have to revise but like if you have the intent correct here's what i'm getting as an outcome what does that mean you know in terms of how else we might be able to get there right um so we are getting towards the um the end of the time here but i, I have a few more questions just um just about your personal experience uh working in government before this you were working in with a few private companies, with a few nonprofits. Um, immediately before this at Code for America, you were kind of government adjacent. Mm -hmm. How did you arrive here at Walnut Creek, and like as a full-fledged government employee? And what what are the factors in in your decision to move into um, public sector? Was there one moment that that kind of made you say this is this is where I want to go, or has it been more of a uh, a process to come to terms with? It's been more of a journey. Okay. I have always been interested in public sector work and impact. Mm -hmm. And 
that has just always been a part of, of my work and my thinking. And in the past, I was doing that primarily through civic technology because what I liked was, you know, how do you have, I think one of the, the questions I think about a lot is how do you have disproportionate, how do you do disproportionate levels of good in the world? How do you have disproportionate levels of impact? I like that, and that framing. So there are a couple of different ways to think about that. So one way, and this has been the way that I thought about it before this, was you find tools that uh, allow you to scale really quickly and teams that are scaling really quickly. And that works really well when you're thinking about tech. You know, <laughs> technology is a tool where you can build something and then, you know, thanks to AWS and a variety of other things, you know, you can, you can scale that fairly quickly. And I think the, the culture around it is one where um, certainly at the startups that I've been a part of before this, they had not enough people and way too many things to do. And so it was kind of like a, as fast and far as you can run, do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was kind of my sense of this is how I'm able to do disproportionate good. And there's another version of that model that I had heard from one of my friends several years back. And what he said was, when you're thinking about when you're thinking about how to be impactful, think about roles where um, there just aren't many people like you. And therefore, the type of work that you're going to be doing and the kind of, uh, I, I, I will not let myself use the word synergy, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the kind of um, you know chemical reactions that you'll create with the people around you mm. are just going to be really unique and therefore, uh, have the potential to be disproportionately impactful because mm -hmm. they will set a model and they will um, they will be a new way of thinking about and doing things. And so always look for opportunities where you don't see enough people like you taking them. And right. that to me, coming out of the Code for America year, what I really felt was there are actually tremendously good people in government. Government isn't isn't hurting uh, in, in a lot of ways for, for like thoughtful, smart people, mm -hmm. but there aren't many people who have really crossed across a couple of different industries, uh, a couple of different types of organizations, right. um, have a little bit of a sense of what do different types of work cultures look like? What are all the different types of tools like tech, various sorts of technology that we might be able to use? Mm -hmm. um, there aren't many people with that kind of background and who are working there. And so for me, seeing these roles, I felt like, you know what? This is how you do disproportionate good, or at least it's enough of a hypothesis that it is worth diving in mm -hmm. and seeing how it goes. Uh, and, and so it's a little bit of a learning curve for me, too, because it is a hunch. It is partially a gut feel. And, uh, and but that's that's kind of how I think about it. And from the government perspective, I am grateful that Walnut Creek has provided, and I hope that other governments provide jobs that are challenging and are opening to outsiders, and uh, and that that do not just put you right in the middle of an existing process, but do give you the opportunity to have that same kind of run room that I often felt with startups. 
mm-hmm. uh, even though everything else about my environment has changed. Uh, and and so I, I kind of hope that there will be more opportunities to bridge that and to, to start people talking on both sides. Yeah. I really like that. Um, that sounds like a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a treat. So there you have it. The inside scoop on development services at Walnut Creek from Jessica Cole. I want to give a huge thank you to Jessica for lending me her time and for kicking off our show with such a great conversation. A few months have passed between the time I talked with Jessica and the time this podcast hit the web. If you want a more up-to-date and battle-hardened take from Jessica, you can reach out to her on Twitter at JessUnscripted. You can find her bio at about.me slash Jessica Cole. This episode, which was an absolute joy to produce, is one of two pilot episodes that I've recorded. I'd like to share more stories of good people doing good work in the public sector, and I'd love to hear what you think about them. If you like what you hear, or if you don't, please send me a quick tweet at thisisgovernment, and that's abbreviated to thisisgvmnt. Or you can send an email to thisisgovernmentpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Once again, I'm Grayson Wright, and this is Government. Thanks for listening. Thank you.